Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Shift, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why meat pies, Cornish pasties, and breakfast burritos are essentially cousins and should be nicer to each other. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, broadcasting from the sunny shores of the Mediterranean, where I hasten to add he has not, has not moved, just so he doesn't have to get up early anymore to do those Israeli TV spots. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. We would like to thank all of our listeners for the comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody who's listening to this to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in Paleolithic. That's right. We're still on different continents, so we'd like to thank our listeners, both of you, uh, for sticking with us during the disruption. Uh, normal service resumes next week. We're very excited. Yeah, so, uh, you know, while we are on separate continents, let's start with North Korea, or as we like to call it here on Taking Ship, the short bus of nuclear powers. These are the kids from science class who managed to weaponize frogs while still not fully understanding regular bathing requirements. Exactly, and as, a, as an attempt to, to counterbalance uh, this particular band of merry pranksters, we were told uh, that uh, the Trump administration had sent a carrier battle group uh, to the uh, to the nearby sea in order to send some sort of message. That's what we were told at one point. It turned out that was not, in fact, the case at all, that the Trump administration did not order a carrier battle group uh, to North Korea or to the area around North Korea. Uh, we just sort of lost the carrier battle group, sort of lost the carrier group. <laughs> yeah, it's not like losing your keys. I mean, there are people, there are people in the Pentagon who know probably to the inch where most of these assets are. Sure, but yeah. who amongst us hasn't misplaced several thousand men and billions of dollars in lethal machinery? I mean, I know I have. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the remarkable part is then the White House blamed it on the Pentagon, which is just sort of astounding. So now at this point, they've pissed off the diplomatic corps, the intelligence corps, and now the defense corps, which is, you know, yeah. that's really what you want to do as the commander in chief is to piss off those three groups of people. It's strong work for the first hundred days. He's really getting after it. Yeah, but I mean, what's remarkable is, you know, and, and as you and I keep going back to, you know, this White House is based on malice and incompetence with incompetence generally winning the day. Uh, but the issue is, is that incompetence usually re leads to secondary and tertiary results. And the incompetence that resulted in saying that there was a carrier strike group going to North Korea led to the secondary results of the carrier strike group which was actually going to Australia and the Australians freaking out that say saying hey we prepared all these war games and now you're not coming so now yeah. we've pissed off one of our allies it turns out that yeah our allies uh this this strangely this is not the most outrageous thing we've done to Australia in the last 3 months uh but but even so uh, yeah it turns out our which allies which is just astounding because i forget about australia more frequently than that 
Oh yeah, I mean these are you know they're they're our affable friends that we are sort of allowed to forget about until they pop up carry until they pop up you know carrying a six pack of beard and we're like hey it's those guys <laughs> awesome they're back good to see you boys come on in no uh, that's not what's happening with the Australians right now they're rather pissed at us because it turns out that moving around major military assets rather that there are plans we don't just move things around at random that actually there are other systems depend on them and so forth it's not so, like just yeah. going from you know D six to E four. That's which, right. Which <laughs> seems the basic way that Trump is approaching naval battle. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's exactly it. It is not, in fact, a game of battleship, <laughs> uh, and and that may be just as well. Um, so yeah. Anyway, they're so that's so, yeah. The Australians again are pissed at us because why not? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's sort of you know. So if part of the idea was that they were sending this battle carrier group. You know, people should uh, understand that a battle carry group isn't just, you know, one big boat. It's also for smaller boats and some submarines and a whole bunch of other things. Like, it, it, they move in a big fleet, essentially. So, just saying that they're going in one direction as opposed to the other direction is some kind of false bluster. I mean, it's basically like the guy who's at the high-stakes table in Vegas and goes all in on a pair of twos. Yeah, it's just it, it it's just not a it's not a smart play. It's and it's not clear what happened here. Like, in the again, this is one where in the uh, in the contest between malice and incompetence, it's not clear which one is going to which one emerged on top here. But they were certainly both in the ring and and swinging. And it, and isn't that really what matters? Yeah, and it's kind of I mean, if you just imagine what that match would be like between incompetence and malice, you've got one guy who can't tag the other guy in any way, shape, or form, and then malice is kind of like the asshole who bites. Yeah. Yeah. And is in his punching himself in the head because he's just so very, very angry. Right. He's so hyped up. From, yeah. So speaking of very, very, very angry, let's move on to Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> and extremely hyped up now. Yes. Bill <laughs> O'Reilly out at Fox News. He's gone. Uh, Stephen Colbert's famous Papa Bear, uh, you know, has been been killed in bear hunting season or whatever. I'm not sure where I was going with that particular metaphor, but I have some 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 piping hot analysis for all of you, and it will be familiar for those of you who've listened to the last couple of weeks. My analysis of Bill Riley being out at Fox News is bah! <laughs> oh boy, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Uh, this is long overdue. Uh, this, this he's been carrying sexual harassment charges. They've been out there for years. He should have been shit canned over those years ago. This is long overdue, but still, but <laughs> yeah, should have been shit canned long ago. Yeah, I mean, if for no other reason he should have been shit canned than the fact that he has a neck gullet that would give a pelican envy. No, oh, it's 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 so creepy and unsightly. Uh, yes, so not only is is he a, a ruinous influence on politics and an interpersonal monster, particularly toward women, uh, but also uh, he is he's just just terrible, terrible to look upon, and he's like it's it's like something out of Lovecraft. Okay, so I but I want to say this: he's off Fox News, but the first bookstore or university or any other institution of, of letters or learning that attempts to treat him like some kind of intellectual historian is going to get all of its accreditations, tax statuses, and basic humanity revoked and be exiled to the Canadian wilderness, where it will have to commune with beavers until it reaches some kind of higher understanding or it will perish in the cold, whichever comes first. This is the law. Yeah, this is one of those times where 
the pure market economy that libertarians and many Fox viewers worship and bandy about, you know, think the Koch brothers or others like that, actually led to a positive outcome. Uh, Bill O'Reilly was faced with some very negative press and advertisers very rapidly left him because he's a perverted bastard, which led to the corporation recognizing that said perverted bastard is, a is more of a liability than asset. It's honestly, it's enough to make Adam Smith swoon. Yeah, so Adam Smith, uh, unfortunately, he uh, um, he died before he was uh, able to finish his his third book, which would have been a magnum opus on you know on the marketplace of perverted bastards. It's the theory, the you know, the theory and practice of moral bastards. It would of perverted bastards. It would have been great. He had strong he had strong views of those things. Is my point? Yeah, in Ayn Rand's uh, you know magnum opus about this specific issue, the architect is actually just a horn dog. Yeah, it's just it's just all that's <laughs> that's precisely it. So many of the initial of the of the theorists of capitalism either wrote wrote about uh, wrote about these awful awful sexual harassers and uh, and and really it's it, it's in retrospect we probably should have seen all of this coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, moving which is different from Karl Marx's famous tract about a dog fighting ring. So you know, I mean, listen. Like, <laughs> You gotta take the rough with the smooth. Yeah, you know, always bet on black in the dogfighting rings. That that's just the general <laughs> that's rule. Exactly. Engels is out here, you know, endlessly writing about how to, you know, how to how to build up a, uh, you know, a side business moving dope. You know, I mean, they, look, they all had their sins. Yeah. I mean, speaking of obscure uh, historical references, if uh, people haven't read A.J. Jacobs, who's an editor at Esquire, if they haven't read his book, The Smartest Smartest Man in the World, uh, everybody should make an attempt to do it. It's basically. It's a a, uh, a, um, a review of his two-year process of reading the Encyclopedia Britannica from beginning to end. And he intersperses uh, bizarre definitions and, and entries with things going on in his life. It's really, it's phenomenally written, and I suggest everyone read it. And I'm not going to lie to you. It, it would take it, based on that description, it would take a hell of a good writer to make that work. He, he is that. It, it's really phenomenal. Uh, but, you know, moving on and across the ocean to, sure. to the country some Foxos believe we are still battling for independence, let us move on to the United Kingdom. And as opposed to other odd podcasts you may be listening to, we at Taking Ship take a global view of the political machinations impacting your lives. And thanks to Frank's experience in British politics, we can offer you more of an in-depth analysis of what's happening than virtually any other podcast this side of the Atlantic. Uh, and with that, we're going to turn and look at the uh, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May, who took power after David Cameron uh, meekly walked back from 10 Downing after just phenomenally losing the Brexit vote. Uh, Theresa May this week called for snap elections, which will be happening on June 8th, which uh, is remarkably soon. Uh, the stated reason is that she wants a, quote, stronger mandate uh, in the official talks with the European Union over Brexit. Basically, she wants to solidify her, her political standing and her party standing so that when she goes and speaks to the, United, the European Union, she can say, I speak for all of Britain, not just, you know, 51% or 52%, whatever that may be. And that is all partly true, but also there's sort of the subtext, which is always the more important text and the more interesting text of all the texts. And this is the annihilation of the British Labour Party. 
and which will certainly work out in her favor and will no doubt actually occur. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I mean, it, certainly, yeah, the destruction of the British Labour Party would give Theresa May a, a, a stronger mandate for sure in the sense that uh, the conquest of uh, East and Central Asia gave uh, Genghis Khan a much stronger mandate to uh, govern and manage uh, regional affairs. Uh, it's th th That's what's coming down the pike. So th this is not the last time we're going to talk about this election. It's not the last time we're going to talk about what's happened, uh, to particularly to progressive politics in Britain. But very briefly, for those of you who may not have uh, paid as close attention to uh, politics on that particular rainy island, uh, Britain has, since the 1980s, basically been a, essentially a three or even a kind of two and a half party country. Now, the conservatives, uh, it's in the name, they are on the right. Uh, Labour, it's in the name, they are on the left, and particularly tied, uh, you know, their, their roots are, again, it's in the name, uh, particularly as a, as a party of working people that has evolved uh, since its, its foundation in the early 20th century. And then there were also the Lib Dems, who was sort of leftish century, lefty century group, uh, you know, socially very progressive. Uh, they are sometimes a they are sometimes a, 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 a robust party and sometimes they are not a robust party. Sometimes they're sort of half a party. So when I say that Britain is sometimes a three, sometimes a two and a half party country, that's really what I mean. In, in recent years, in the last five years, uh, there, we've seen the, the rise popularly of, uh, which I think is sort of popularly overestimated in its scale, but, but nonetheless very important of, of UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, became a very significant uh, political force in some tight races in 2015. Uh, it, there, this is not a large party, but it's extremely loud and located in some swing districts. And it really came about particularly as the driving force uh, behind the, uh, the, the, the sort of the loud and the vocal driving force behind Brexit. Uh, so not a lot. There have not historically been a lot of UKIP voters. Uh, they're not numerous, but they're loud and they're located in, in some swing districts, which I, which I suspect is, is not a coincidence. And as a result, UKIP was able to uh, capture the imagination of British politics in a way that I think is, is more than their, their sheer numbers would, would suggest. And also where their vote was coming from. A lot of their vote came from uh, disaffected white working class voters who had traditionally voted labor. Uh, so the, it's not just that their numbers were uh, you know, were, were significant, if not great, but also that they were drawing away from one of the major parties in a very serious way. And so, so, I mean, it's basically UKIP is sort of represents the idea of the uh, disaffected Democrats or non-voters in the upper Midwest in Ohio. Sure. There's, there's a, there is, it's not a perfect parallel, but it's, but, but there's definitely room for comparison there. Uh, disaffected Democrats and also disaffected Republican voters. I mean, these are, you know, these are people who sort of, to the extent that you're talking about the real hardcore of people who are kind of doing a plague on both your houses, uh, you know, and sort of see Republicans and Democrats as being very much the same on the side of the powerful and the side of the wealthy, on the side of a kind of global elite that has lost touch with them. Uh, yeah, UKIP is, is, is definitely the, the sort of the British outlet of that, of that sentiment, which is a kind of, you know, is a sentiment that you find all over the West now. And in normal circumstances, so if everything else being equal, in normal circumstances, if this were, you know, a, a kind of run-of-the-mill, uh, this were kind of run, of, you know, run-of-the-mill year in a conservative government, you would expect the conservatives to be proportionally, so you can get a sense of when I talk about who has big numbers and who doesn't have big numbers, to give give you a sense of this, you'd expect the conservatives to be at some to have 
popularly it's somewhere around 35 to 40% of the total ele- total electorate and their support right you would expect 35 to 40% of the people would would have would support a conservative government you know labor would be in the kind of high 20s to mid 30s um and then the the rest and then the lib dems uh the the ukip uh the scottish national party and various other uh smaller parties would round out the remaining plurality so generally speaking in this two and a half party system one, either conservatives or labor are higher between 35 and 40, maybe low 30s to 40. The other is, you know, high 20s to mid 30 percent. Again, this is a percentage of the electorate that supports you at any given moment. And then there might be a third party that would rise into the high teens, right? And the reason I'm, and why I'm going into these numbers will become clear in a second. Labor did unexpectedly poorly in 2015. Uh, it was a... Uh, it was generally considered that labor would would we generally conceive that labor would lose that election, um, but that it would not be a, a it, it would not be a significant loss. That the conservatives would probably have to go back into, uh, they would probably have to go back into government with again the Lib Dems or with a third party that they wouldn't the conservatives wouldn't have a large enough majority to form a government outright. Uh, they did. Uh, uh, labor did unexpectedly badly. And they had a leadership election immediately afterward that resulted uh, in uh, in Jeremy Corbyn becoming the leader of the Labor Party. Jeremy Corbyn is a politician who's been around, uh, has been an MP and been in been an MP uh, Labor MP for uh, Jesus Christ feels like forever, but for uh, more than thirty years, been in British politics for a lot longer than that. Uh, identified with the very with with a pretty far left part of the party. Uh, yeah, can they, you he, can you kind of give an yeah. analogy for some of our more American listeners? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, he's left of what the idea of like burn. If you're going to put labor with the Democratic Party, Jeremy Corbyn is like far to the left of what Bernie Sanders would be to the Democratic Party, right? Yeah, that's 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 about right. Uh, which is not to say that Jeremy Corbyn is to the. Which is not to say that Jeremy Corbyn is strongly to the left of Bernie Sanders. In some respects, he is. Um, but in some respects, he's not. But keep in mind. The Labour Party is farther to the left of the Democrat is pretty far is farther to the left than the Democratic Party, even under New Labour and and when it went back a little bit more toward the political middle, uh, Labour is has always just been more comfortable with the role of the state in the economy. Uh, that's that's part of what defines them. And and Labour leaders talk Labour leadership candidates talk openly about being socialists, which of course in this country you would never see. Uh, but Corbyn is considered to be from the far left from. Not the hardest of left, but pretty far to the left of the of the Labour Party, and and a kind of an older and 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 much more avowedly socialist part of the party, which is still around, still a significant part of the party, but was eclipsed within the party's power structure by Tony Blair and and uh, and the and new Labour politicians, a sort of new generation that were much of of Labour politicians that were much more market friendly than were in power from 1997 to 2010. So Corbyn's victory indicated that it was moved the party publicly to the left and also showed that there was a, a, a significant part of the labor membership and a new type of membership, which we can get into later. Uh, there was a, a lot more interest in a much more leftist uh, as opposed to sort of leftist liberal uh, uh, labor party. So Jeremy Corbyn wins in uh, September 2015. Uh, the party has been a total free fall ever since. Uh, they had a second leadership election in 2016, uh, which resulted in Jeremy Corbyn winning again. Uh, and the party is now, and the Labour Party is now at 23%. Uh, and again, this is a party that, when it's out of power, 
when labor has lost and is in opposition, really should be about 30 to 35, really should be about 30 to 35 percent of the vote, maybe a little bit lower when they're in a bad way. But for the most part, um, they really should be uh, they really should be significantly better off than this. Now, they're now at 23 percent of the popular vote. The conservatives are at 44 percent. Conservatives almost double labor's vote total, almost labor's support total. This is this is bad. This is really, really bad for the Labor Party. They're there and they have been in total free fall and they have fallen to a point. You would expect a third party to be at, a, a third party doing well would be at 23 percent. And that's where labor is right now. Heading into the heading into this election season. So you basically are pretty close to saying my least favorite phrase of any pollster ever, which is, quote, bearing something strange. And that's because we really have no idea what's going on with any of these polling and things kind of result in some pretty strange shit. But bearing something strange, labor is going to get their asses handed to them in the same way, yeah. you know, a teetoller's spirit will get crushed during a happy hour on Friday on, a fle- on Fleet Street. Yeah, every that, 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 that's about right. I mean, it's it, my natural inclination on this one is to say, yeah, barring a weird thing happening, uh, labor is going to is going to get crushed. Politics has been nothing but weird things lately. Nonetheless, uh, I, I fully anticipate that this will result in an historic defeat for the Labor Party. And at some point in the future, and we we can we can do a fall of the House of Labor episode where we'll get some people who are more knowledgeable on this stuff than I am. Uh, we can and and really sort of get into the into the story of how. A major progressive, uh, the you know the you know a major political party, the progressive political party in, uh, you know, America, what is sometimes described as America's most important alliance, uh, a, a permanent five member of the Security Council, a nuclear power, uh, you know, the world's uh, you know fifth, sixth, seventh largest economy, wherever you know wherever it has been, uh, how the how the uh, the a, an established and popular and election winning political wing or you know, political uh, faction fell completely apart. So at some point we'll do a fall of the house of labor podcast and talk a little bit about that in greater detail. And I think the reason that we need to do that is I can, I've been watching what is happening over there for more than a decade. I've been part of it for more than a decade. I've been watching it for, I've been, I've been part of it for about a decade. I've been watching it for more than a decade. I can tell you that a lot of what happens in British progressive politics informs and predicts what happens over here. Yeah. I so at some it, point, yeah, it, it's sort of interesting. I mean, it, we're, we will do this episode, and we'll probably need some, you know, some serious Game of Thrones music to to really kick it up a notch. But the point you're making about that it sort of predicts what's happening here. I mean, I don't know that our average podcast listener understands the magnitude of Labor's loss unless they're looking at sort of the thousand seats that were lost at local elections during the Obama years. Sure. It's, it is, it is that plus it would be that plus losing the presidency plus losing more Senate seats and more congressional seats. I mean, the, the, the level of devastation that has happened to that party it, and, and, and in particular what we can't lose sight of, and this is the really critical part is Particularly, what's happened to labor in Scotland, and we'll get into that in a separate conversation. But whatever, and then when again, when we do a proper fall of the House of Labor. Uh, but what's happened to labor in Scotland? Labor Scotland used to be their essentially not exactly labor's heartland, but one of their heartlands. It used to be one of their most reliable bastions, and they've been completely routed out of Scotland. Uh, and it would be the equivalent of the state of California turning completely to a new party. It's you know, if someone came up and just said, you know, hey, we're the California First Party. 
and every U.S. you know both U.S. senators, all of our congressional, de- all the Democratic Party congressional delegation, the governors, every, you know everyone down to the dog catcher, uh, became the California pr- first party, and there were no more Democrats there. That's it's a great that analogy. Te- it's, it's that tectonic for what's happened to the Labor that's Party. A, that's a phenomenal analogy. Yeah. So the question now is what happens next? Uh, you know, so, you know, you know, we'll save the fall of the House of Labor for another day, uh, particularly after that. Well, fall we have to wait been, for we have to hold it for another yeah, day because we've got to get the yeah. right Game of Thrones theme music. That, that's exactly right. We've got to we've got to you know, we've, we've got to get our, our ducks in a row uh, for that. And also we have to wait until the House falls falls good and proper, which, again, I am predicting it will, that will happen on June 8th. Uh, so, you know, the election's been called. There's a short campaign cycle. Uh, what happens next? Uh, so the conservatives will, con- if the conservatives win, as I predict they will, come back with a larger majority, they'll continue to push on uh, Brexit. And keep in mind, Theresa May was a remain was a remainer. She was a remain spokeswoman, in fact. Uh, but she has nonetheless inherited Brexit, and uh, and she and her party will continue to push it. Uh, so they'll they'll continue to push Brexit, and you know the world waits with bated breath. Meanwhile, for the French to save us in their next election from what appears to be a sort of growing tidal wave of xenophobia and xenophobic politicians in the West. Yeah, and the last time the world relied on the French, which, who boy, we should have learned by this point to not do, the French to stop the march of, the, of a bunch of xenophobic authoritarians, they assured us that the Maginot Line could never fail. And, That's exactly right. You know, yeah. anybody yeah, who knows sure. World War II history recognizes that hmm, not so much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, we're so, but but no doubt, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, no doubt the French will save us yet again. So this is part of, you know, I, I I think in some respects there there's a political complexity here because this done, uh, Theresa May and the Conservative Party will fully own Brexit in a way that they haven't necessarily before. That she largely has, but she will now officially own it. Uh, and we'll have to live with its consequences. Uh, but the the sort of the march of 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 isolationist nationalism uh, and some of the xenophobia that goes with it continues. Uh, what else is going to happen? The Scottish National Party will almost certainly use uh, a significant conservative victory on June eighth, which again is what we're predicting. Uh, they'll almost certainly use that as further encouragement to push for another independence referendum, possibly as early as next year. Uh, whenever that happens, uh, I would say they are more likely to win it than not. Uh, one of the big uh, one of the big factors uh, delaying that push, uh, delaying the next independence referendum. Uh, is the fact that they're going to have to redo all of their numbers that would just that would explain what the Scottish economy looks like because when they went to the referendum in 2014, a lot of their projections for what an independent Scottish economy would look like is ba- were based on uh, fuel on based on oil prices that uh, were that at the time seemed reasonable and now uh, seem insane, uh, seem crazily high. So I think, but. You know, there's and then there's an entire question about what happens. How does a newly independent Scotland attempt to join the EU, or what arrangement do they form with the EU? That's another conversation for another day. But I suspect a conservative victory leads them to uh, leads them to uh, to push uh, for an independence referendum, which I think they would be in a very good position to win. And again, we can get into the details of why that'll happen uh, when we do the the fall of the House of Labour a little bit later in the year. Uh, the strange thing about all of this is that you know a lot of I talked about Corbyn being to the left of the Labour Party, but you know, a lot of Corbyn's domestic positions aren't necessarily too far outside the British mainstream. Uh, they're not necessarily election winners as such, but they aren't the stuff of historic defeats. So, uh, and I'll give you an example of three very popular ones that they released last week, or a couple of very popular ones. 
policies that they released last week, there was a you know a ten pound national minimum wage. Uh, given where the pound is right now, I think that'd be about a $13, $14 minimum wage. Uh, but you know, even if the pound were at its historic average, that would be a $16, $16 minimum wage. So, you know, this is not, it's not certainly not stark staring madness. Uh, there was a, 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 there was free school lunches for all children, uh, regardless of, you know, regardless of means. So we're just going to feed the kids at lunch. Congratulations, everyone. Like that was also reasonably popular. A lot of the stuff about uh, having a greater state hand in the railways, which are a complete mess, have been privatized, and and there's a sense that the privatized railways haven't really delivered much in the way of better service. I love, service I love that price. we consider the British rails a mess where we're dealing with Amtrak. Oh God, I mean, yeah, this is you know, on, I mean, if you're asking me on what leg I stand, I you know, I tell you, not you know, none whatsoever. I'm yeah. lying in the dirt on this one, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it, you know, there's the privatization scheme has not worked particularly well. There's a lot of frustration about how British Rail works. Uh, so there's, you know, some of the privatization idea. schemes have never worked particularly well. The most recent experience being the oligarch regime in Russia. But sure, that's not yeah, to, that's, that's not to say that you don't you there aren't clever businessmen who can actually improve things. You know, people like Mike Bloomberg or Richard Branson or some other people. Certainly not Donald Trump, but some other people who who can actually take over a major asset and improve it. Sure, but that's I mean, and we can talk about the legacy of you know Bloomberg until we're blue in the face. And I mean, I think there's actually a good sort of question about where some about a sort of technocratic businessman fits into the broader political uh, spectrum. But those are business figures who have business figures taking government is very different from a private sector uh, of a, a private sector enterprise taking over the actual operation and delivery of what had been a public would have been a public yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and that's, which is, so it's not that they brought in businessmen to run British rail. It's that they have, it's that Brit big chunks of the British rail system are now run by private corporations. So, I mean, you mentioned R Richard Branson, Virgin Trains is, uh, you know, so now there, there's, there are private operators on the British rail lines. And the, and again, the sense is, you know, that was meant to encourage efficiency and drive down prices and all the other stuff that Thatcher promised. And there is a sense that that really hasn't, happened. I, you know, I'm, I'm making a slightly larger deal out of this than I think it would. You know, Brits don't talk about fixing the rails as the issue that they're going to vote on. But it is a good example of Corbyn holding a position that, yeah, maybe you're not necessarily going to win a lot of votes on that, but you're not going to get a lot of people who will say, oh yeah, how dare, you know, don't get, you know, get your hands off of our lovely working rail system. And that's true of a lot of the kind of reforms that he's pushing for, some more than others. And you know, increasing marginal tax rates on the very wealthy, that's not out of the British mainstream. There's a bunch, you know, there, some of it's a little bit more status than I suspect British voters necessarily want. He wants to create a national education system to, that would look at like the national health system. So it's a big centralized public school system, which is moving away from the way that the, the British school system has gone in the last 15 years. So, you know, there are a couple of positions that are maybe a little more status than most Brits would go for, or maybe not. But at any rate, these are not the policies of a party that is trying to uh, trying to roust itself or trying to drive itself out of any pretense of power. What is undoing Corbyn and what is undoing the Labour Party is partly the way that he and and his part of the party present those ideas. So you can talk about taxing the very wealthy to pay for better public services for everyone in Britain, and people will get and you can get away with it. But when you're chancellor of the exchequer, when you're when you're or when you're shadow excuse me your shadow chancellor, which is to say your you know the the your, your pick for who would lead the treasury, literally pulls out Mao's little red book in the floor of the House of Commons, it looks like you're crazy 
And that happened. <laughs> so this is the kind of stuff there is a, you know, a need for ideological purity and a kind of, a, you know, a, a, they talk about what is in effect a not especially radical, although it's a, it's a leftist agenda, don't get me wrong, but they talk about a leftist agenda in terms that make it seem like they're, you know, like they're calling for the goddamn cultural revolution. So there is some of that. Some of it is the problem. Some of the, some of this is a problem with Corbyn himself. He just presents as a kind of well-meaning, uh, you know, as a sort of well-meaning superannuated professor, uh, you know, who, you know, is, is, you know, probably very pleasant to talk to and, and probably, you know, and, and is clearly a man of conviction and belief, um, but is not the sort of person that you would necessarily want to have running anything much larger than a, you know, a study group at a, you know, at a, you know, at a leafy university. Yeah. I mean, he's got uh, a, he's got yeah. a neck beard and wears tweed. Yeah, this is, this is exactly the guy. And he just, and that this is not the, this is not the image that you're trying to project. Uh, and and, and part of this, I think, also, and this is a this is a, a salient point for the American left. A lot of what makes him politically toxic in Britain is his views of Britain's place in the world, and some of that it's he's part of a segment of the left that views America and Britain, you know, the special relationship, right? That views America and Britain almost as inherently bad actors when we go out into the world because we march to the tune of our capitalist masters. Yeah. Uh, and and as, a, as a result, he's publicly sided with a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of organizations and people whose causes might be matters of legitimate discussion. Maybe, maybe not, but in many cases, their, their causes are matters of legitimate discussion, but their means are frankly barbaric. Um, and in the in the case of the IRA, directed against Brits themselves, uh, and and to be publicly seen for, for a British MP to be publicly seen to be aligned with the IRA, which which he was at one point, uh, that's that is disqualifying to a large number of Brits, uh, and and as a result, sometimes he can articulate a policy that is that be, you know again like last week when he introduced a couple of good ideas uh, that people really like they like the ideas but they don't like him. They've got the wrong message. They, you know, they, they, so labor is struggling to find a good message. It is deeply and viciously internally divided, um, and and also hopelessly poorly run. I mean, this is from a purely internal political perspective. Corbyn is as bad a party leader as I think as I think a progressive party on either side of the Atlantic has seen in a very long time. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. it's you know. It, you know, far be it for me to tell people to not read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which I genuinely think should be required reading of people. Uh, but I think the point is, is is very clear that, you know, not only is Jeremy Corbyn sort of using that not just as a, you know, a side reference to his overall ideology, he's using it as the main reference book, which is always not pleasant and not a great idea. But more importantly than that, he's not this person who should be leading the party because he's so far off to the left and the things that he's proposing are so outside of the mainstream. And when I look at the, you again, you know, bringing it back to our American audience, thinking about it, when you look at some of the things that, you know, again, to crap all over Bernie Sanders, which I'm more than happy to do, um, that's what he represents, even though he remains not a member of the Democratic Party, which is a whole other issue that we should probably talk about. But in addition to him, there are people like Elizabeth Warren, and there are people um, uh, uh, um, like some local legislators who have similar ideas that just don't fit into the American mainstream in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I basically believe that you kind of need to be between 
let's say 35 and 65 on the scale of you know absolute crazy to absolute crazy to have something that can actually be talked about and actually be voted on and actually get gained traction to. And the same way that Corbyn is outside of that 35 to 65, it seems to me that they're that the Democratic Party to some extent had they are threatened by floating into into a direction of oblivion. I mean, is essentially the best way to put it. It's possible for that to happen. And I think the the lesson I think from Corbyn is you can float you can float into unelectability pretty easily with a set of policies that I mean again and tweed part, it starts with tweed and tweed it starts with tweed it starts with tweed and neckbeards without question you can float into unelectability pretty easily and and quicker than you'd think if even even with a set of policies that you know again I mean this is I want to be clear Corbyn's Labour Party is pretty lefty he's got some ideas that are outside the mainstream but for the most part you can become unelectable with a set of policy ideas that are not completely insane and for which there is at least some constituency. Oh yeah, if absolutely. Your own, if your only method of, if your only view of how to talk about them is to suggest that anyone who opposes you is a tool of the capitalist overclass, right? Like the idea is like, I mean, there, there is a, there, there is no possible discussion. There's no possible deviation uh, from, you know, from their kind of, it's an upset. It is a fixation with this kind of Marxist materialist analysis, the um, analysis of the world in which, you know, you're either on the side of, you know, the, you know, you're on the side of the workers or you're on the side of, ca- of the bosses. Right. And, and, and that doesn't, that, that a leaves out an enormous complexity of human experience, all sorts of human motivations. Uh, but it also has a way of just pissing people off. Right. Uh, oh, you don't. Oh, you don't. You know, you don't necessarily agree with our. You know, with our policy on education. Well, that's just because you're. A, you know, you're a tool of the banks. Well, no, well, that's that's not necessarily true. Like we may have all sorts of things. So there may be all sorts of reasons for arguing with their views. So I will say uh, anyway, and, and to give you just a quick a good example of this, when Corbyn was asked about ISIL, you know what what you know led to ISIL, what led to you know what to be what's to be done about them, his response was to blame banks and blame arms traders and say you know we've got to we've got to get them in here and ask them some tough questions. No doubt people have sold them some arms, uh, but. But this is your chance to talk about this particularly barbaric bunch of assholes who run around, you know, drowning people in cages. Then your answer is, well, you know, you want to talk about who's really bad. It's the banks. Right. Uh, so uh, you don't to sort of round this out. You don't get a sense from Corbin. And this is where he is a bad politician, just a bad politician. You don't get a sense from this guy of what his Britain, what his vision for Britain is supposed to look like, what his story of Britain is. Every politician who's running for is running for the top job, president, prime minister, chancellor, whatever. You're always telling a story about your country, and you want people to believe your story. And to and essentially, when people vote for you, they are or your party, they are voting for your story. Once upon a time, there was capitalism and false consciousness and very powerful special interests. Is not a story. It's not something that people are going to get behind. Now he doesn't have a story for Britain, and and we're going to see the cost of that on June eighth. So. That's the that that is the that's the projection. Uh, Theresa May has called a snap election, and for all sorts of reasons, uh, it is the twilight before. You know, it's it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black for our our progressive uh, compatriots across the pond. Yeah. So if there's a lesson to be learned for people, uh, neck beards and tweed are not the way to go. Um, with that said, we're going to try to keep this episode. A, 
this episode a little bit short again uh, due to our schedules, but we'll be back in full force with a guest next week. In the meantime, I want to urge everyone to subscribe on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to us and be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in premonition. Uh, that's our pod for the week. Um, and as also, uh, as always, we're going to take ship to some exotic locale. And with that, Frank, where are we going this week? We take ship this week for Utah. It's going to take a long time to get to Utah by boat. It's going to involve a lot of rivers and creeks, but by God, we're going to do it because we have to persuade Jason Chaffetz, who just announced that he is not going to seek re-election. We have to persuade him to run again so we can flog his ass good and proper. That dude does not get to take the easy way out of this thing. We want him to run so we can lose. And if he won't run again, he can face me in the octagon. That'll learn him. Friends, we take ship now for Utah. Take care, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>